Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. continue to uh, work through the gospel of John. We're actually going to finish out chapter 8 in a couple of weeks and then take a break from the gospel of John, do something else in summer and in the fall. And in January 2017, we're going to have a lot of fun with John chapter 9. So that's where we're going. Um, as you turn there, uh, I want to tell you about a house I lived in for, uh, for a season with a couple of friends of mine. It was an older house in an older part of the city we were living in. And so it had its challenges, but it was a really fun uh, stage of life, living with a couple close buddies, um, a lot of ramen noodles and all those exciting kinds of things. And, uh, and, and the house was just great. It seemed to be the, the, the place that friends gathered, and, and so it was a, a lot of fun. But the, living together and living in an older home in an older part of town came with its challenges nonetheless. And so I'll, I'll share a couple of those with you. Um, one of them was, um, turned out the house had a bit of a rat problem. So, you know, sometimes, you know, you see a little mouse scurry across the corner and that maybe, you know, freaks you out a little bit, but it's really no big deal. And I really view it that way now that a little mouse is no big deal because I lived in a house with a rat problem. Okay, so it's just perspective is helpful. Uh, we, we discovered that it had a rat problem because on our dinner table, some of you are like, really, are we going here? Yeah, we are. So, uh, uh, realized we had a rat problem when on on our dinner table, we had um, a pretty big fruit bowl. And I walked up to our fruit bowl one day and said, weird, why is there just a stem of a banana in there? Because there was actually quite a bit of fruit in there, it feels like, yesterday. And we noticed on on the leg of, of the table, there were just these claw marks going up. We started to discover in our kitchen, like up the cabinetry were just claw marks. And we thought, do we have a mouse problem? We realized we had a rat problem, put out some rat traps, and these were like small cats. This was, this was crazy. And so it just became a part of living in the old house with the guys was the rat problem. And every once in a while, putting up a rat trap and making sure one of the other roommates was there to find it and therefore have to clean it up. And, and the blood splatter on the wall, all of it. Anyways, let's move on before uh, some people start to walk out. So another problem that we had in the home was, um, you know, we live really in a rainforest area, and so rain comes often, we all know that, but in particularly strong rainy seasons or times, we discovered that the foundation had a bit of a crack in it, and therefore, rental house, therefore, like, water would also come in the house. And so, thankfully, my buddy Tyson and I didn't have rooms downstairs, but our other roommate did. And a foot of water would routinely come in in rainier times of year, and we'd just have to adjust. Needless to say, the house had its challenges, and yet it was this sweet season because there was friendship there, relationship there. It was the gathering place, and we just loved living in that home. This morning in John chapter 8, we're looking at a text where Jesus is saying, abide in my word, dwell there, remain there, through thick and thin, through the rat problems, through the foot of water, remain, abide, stay steadfast, because that is what true discipleship looks like. So let's read the text, and we're going to dive right in. There's a lot to talk about this morning. John 8, starting in verse 31, we left off in verse 30 last week where it says that many believed the words of Jesus, they believed him, and so now it picks up and says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him in his conversation with them, and he tells them this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Sort of an odd statement at first glance, isn't it? That they've never been enslaved to anyone? They're saying that their father is Abraham, as we'll see in the text. And yet after Abraham... God's people certainly did live in slavery, and yet they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever he says truly, truly, it's like 
Catch this, listen, this is a truly, truly, and here's one of those statements of really listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. They have an inheritance coming. The slave does not. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So Jesus is continuing a conversation here just to kind of get you up to speed, continuing a conversation of of standing in front of them and saying, I am the light of the world. And they're saying, no, you're not. I am the son of God. I come from the father. They say, no, you didn't. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you the truth, but they would not believe it. He's saying, if you reject me, you are, in fact, not only rejecting God, but you're also not doing what your father Abraham did. Is he truly your father? For for Abraham rejoiced at my coming. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Listen close. Why is it that you do not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. We're talking this morning about abiding in Jesus' word. The problem here is that they cannot bear to hear Jesus' word. You are of your father. Jesus gets pointed. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so it's interesting, Jesus is saying, that you're rejecting me as the truth as I stand in front of you. For what evidence of fatherhood do you have then if you reject the truth about God? You're following the lies of Satan for he is a liar Jesus in verse 45 says, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Again, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. They abide in his word. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Very heavy. I want, there's three questions I'd like for us to have in our minds this morning, and we'll address them because the, I think it's where the text goes. Here's the three questions we can have in our minds. Who are true disciples of Jesus, first? What are true disciples of Jesus freed from? Second, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, free from what? Third, what are true disciples of Jesus freed for? What's the point? Freed why? What are true disciples of Jesus freed Four. So let's look at the first question. Who are true disciples of Jesus? Now, I want to say off the top this morning that I want to differentiate between works and, and, and free grace because we are going to emphasize a lot of this morning of what true disciples do. And so if we, if we miss here or if we recognize that a lot of emphasis this morning is on what true disciples look like. So that's a call to you and I to live a particular way. If we recognize that that's going on, it can sound like we are to just to do, do, do. We are to go about doing and working at living a particular way. But I want to differentiate here this morning between works and grace. William Marsh clarifies this well for us when he says, we are justified freely by grace. So to be a follower of Jesus, firstly, is to be given a free gift of grace. So there's no effort by us at this point. It's a free gift of grace. We are justified freely by grace, meritoriously by Christ, 
meaning on the, on the merits of Jesus, not our merits, again, not our work, not what we do, but by the merits of Christ. Thirdly, instrumentally by faith. Faith is the instrument by which we are saved. So we put our faith in Jesus who's done the work. And lastly, evidently by good works. We are justified freely by grace, meritoriously by Christ, instrumentally by faith, and evidently by good works. We're gonna talk this morning about what true faith looks like, but this true faith is given as a gift. This true faith, yes, produces faith, and this true faith, yes, produces good works, but it's still all grace. So what I want you to hear this morning is that we rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ, and yet when we rely on that, it looks a particular way. And this is what Jesus is talking about in this text. He says, if you abide in my word, you're my true disciples. Meaning, those who are truly saved, who have given their lives to Jesus and are followers of Jesus Christ, they are people who go about abiding in his word. So what you ought not hear this morning is abide better. But what it means is as you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's your great joy and it's the purpose in your whole life to dwell in the word of Jesus so all this talk in this text about Abraham, Jesus, and the devil, all of it comes down to this. Jesus is telling these new believers that true disciples have the right paternity, and it has a lot less to do with biology than it does to do with believing. Do you believe Jesus or not? Do you dwell in my words? Do you abide in my word? That's what we have to do, has to do with the right paternity. Have you ever watched one of those horrendous shows where they do paternity tests? Right, and they're sitting there, and the girl's sitting there, and like the, the, the thing comes out, it's like, you are not the father. It's like so awkward and so uncomfortable. Like six episodes later, it's the same woman, and it's like a different guy, and it's like, you are not the father. And you're like, wow, this is really like the worst of all society in this moment. But Jesus is coming along, I guess pulling a bit of a Maury Povich is what I'm trying to say, I guess. And he's coming along and is saying, look, Abraham being your great, 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 great granddaddy, that's not what positions you in God's family. We're not talking biology here, but believing and trusting in the Son of God, that's what welcomes you into God's family. So there's this tension here. And Jesus is saying to these new believers, the way that we abide in the word of Jesus is to continue to believe and obey what he says. So, because we're talking about abiding in Jesus' word, I'd like for you to flip to Luke chapter 8 if you have a Bible. We're in John. Just go back one gospel to the gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 8, there's a parable called the parable of the sower. And this parable of the sower is about um, a sower who goes about um, sowing seed. And it tells us that the seed is the word of God. And so as we are recognizing that we are to abide in his word, let's, let's look at this parable about the seed, the word going out and, and, and what it truly looks like to be a disciple who abides in the word of Jesus. Luke 8, verse 4, when, the crowd, the, when a great crowd was gathering and people uh, from town to after town came to him, he said in a parable, this is really interesting, this is the biggest crowd yet that has ever heard Jesus. And I find it fascinating that this is what he says. He's just really straight with people. Biggest crowd yet. The, the temptation in these kinds of moments is to say, my name's Jesus and I love you all. Let's talk about how much I love you just over and over. He's got the biggest crowd yet. Why not say the easy stuff? But that's not what he does. He's just really, really straight with the biggest crowd he's ever had, and this is what he says. Is God love? Absolutely. But he's also very clear. Here's what he says. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Abide in his word. Now look, there were four soils I just read rather quickly. Let's break those down. 
because there's four hearts that were present in the crowd that day, and those four hearts continue to exist in our churches today. Here are the four hearts. There's the seed that falls along the path, which we'll call hard hearts. There is the seed that falls along rocky soil, which we'll call shallow hearts. There's the seed that falls among thorns, which we'll call infested hearts, and seed that falls on good soil, which we'll call soft hearts. So let's look at the hard hearts first and work our way through to the soft hearts. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The seed had no opportunity to become embedded in the ground and draw nutrients from the soil because it went along the path where there was no opportunity for it to sink down roots. Here we see that these people hear the gospel but don't respond, like do not respond to the gospel at all or at least respond positively. And it tells us that the devil swoops in and hardens their hearts. Functionally, these are people who have heard but have not responded to the gospel. They've heard but they sneer at the gospel. They've heard but have no time for the gospel. Life is crowded with other things and the gospel just does not look enticing, does not look beautiful or captivating at all. Kent Hughes helps us engage this kind of soil further when he says, some of the hard-hearted may be more sophisticated. They have drunk freely from the, a loose set of attitudes and ideas known as modernity. They are not interested in God's word because they don't believe objective truth can be known. We need to hear this. This is important for our day, for our time. They worship technology's brilliance and substitute it for God. They rarely ever pursue the logical end of their presuppositions. They may be hostile, but very often they are simply uninterested. Their hearts are as hard as nails and dulled of all feeling by the busyness of life. As the truth bounces on the hardened surface of their lives, Satan comes with a fluttering, chirping interest, some busy excitement perhaps, maybe some gossip, and flies away with the life-giving seed. When I read a text like this at first glance, I think, where is the hope? This is unjust. This is not fair. How is it that Satan can devour the seed and the, it, what hope do they have? Well, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we were, we were talking about unbelieving family and the fact that nothing's impossible for Jesus. No one is beyond his grip, his grasp. One way God awakens people to himself who have hard hearts is through pain and tragedy. It can soften hardened hearts to God's truth, or to put it in this context, in the midst of difficulty, the word of God can fall into the broken ground of people's lives. It's when lives get a bit broken, when a bit of tragedy strikes, when pain and suffering come, that the ground, the path actually begins to break a bit. Right, like a driveway that's just getting pretty old and the cracks form and the weeds actually start to come through or life in some form starts to come through. It's actually through the hard things that this can happen. A few years ago, I knew someone um, who asked to come to church and this, this blew my mind because he was someone that weeks earlier, literally weeks er earlier was opposed to God, Christianity, and the church in a spiteful way, right? In a, in a hard-hearted way, I would listen to him talk about faith, Christianity, the church, God, right? He would just, and, and there was just like venom in his voice. But he had a severe panic attack weeks later. And directly after experiencing this severe panic attack, he opened up the newspaper that was right there to the faith section, and it was talking about how in the midst of anxiety, God can be your peace. And he went from that moment and said, I need to get to church. Weeks earlier, I was like, man, this is the furthest guy I know from the gospel. No one is beyond God's grasp, even those who scoff at God and claim that it is foolishness. God can even soften the heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Secondly, 
we see in the text that there are some shallow hearts. Verse 13 tells us, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Rocky ground is hard to spot, uh, since in the Palestinian hill country, a lot of topsoil thinly sits on top of limestone rock. So you got a little bit of soil, and you just spread the seed on this little, but there's limestone rock underneath. So there's just no opportunity. The, the roots do not sink down deep. This is the guy who receives the word of God and is pumped about it. Right? He networks in such a way that he's able to find a church service every single day of the week, and he goes. And he, he's in the front, and he's fired up about it. He shares Jesus passionately, confronts older Christians about how dead their faith is, and it's pure emotion. What happens to the shallow heart is that when the first storm comes, when difficulty strikes, he blames God and he bolts. The faith of the shallow-hearted person is non-existent. The hearer never puts down roots. To stand the test of time is to have a faith that doesn't just worship, worship Jesus in the good times, but that still worships Jesus in the hard times. And the soil on rocky ground never makes it through the hard times with their faith still intact. It's a shallow heart. It's a shallow faith. And it actually says that they fall away. Helmut Thielik helps us by saying this, there is nothing more cheering than transformed Christian people. And there is nothing more disintegrating than people who have been merely brushed by Christianity. People who have been sown with a thousand seeds, but in whose lives there is no depth and no rootage. Therefore, they fall when the first whirlwind comes along. It is the half-Christians who always flop in the face of the first catastrophe that happens because their dry intellectuality and their superficial emotionalism do not stand the test. So even that which they think they have is taken away from them. All this is not to say that authentic faith doesn't involve great emotion and ups and downs. Of course it does. But true faith puts down deep, sustaining roots in the mind and in the heart. Perhaps they claimed or even continue to claim that they are Christians, but their faith shriveled when hard times came. There was no real life and their hearts still need to come to Christ. They need to encounter what the, the great hymn says, whatever my lot Good or bad storms of life, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Why? Because the true faith finds that Jesus is enough. But the shallow heart never comes to that conclusion. Never sticks it out long enough to ever have that come. This is partly why it's not strictly to children and to youth, it's to anyone who might come to faith or hear and believe passionately for a moment. This is why we need to instill and invest in our children and our youth to see them actually dig down deep roots because the storms come and we're finding it's not just the transition from high school to university where the storms start to come and their faith wavers if there are no deep roots. We're actually finding that's from elementary to middle school, from middle school to high school. And that if we aren't sinking down deeps early, like roots down early, that we actually have this uphill battle of not giving them a firm foundation. So we say, you know what? We actually think that Bible memorization is important because when the storm comes, it's really helpful to be able to bank on the word of God and not just have Christianity light for the first dozen, 15, 18 years of their lives. We wanna sink faith down deep into our children and into our youth. When we see people come to saving faith, we are so pumped about it here at Central. And yet the next step is, hey, come alongside to our life group and let us help you dig down roots in this faith that will help you sustain what, what is coming. Because it's not all rosy when you give your life to Jesus. In fact, it's hard. That's why we tell people when they get baptized around here or step into leadership around here, hey, we're praying for you a ton because it's probably gonna be a really bad couple of weeks, months. It's gonna be hard for you. You are gonna get attacked. You go, really? I thought it was like, yeah, it's not all exciting. My, my worst time of the week is Saturday night and Sunday afternoon. Always makes for great weekends with your wife, by the way. Great weekends. Because preaching's coming. Leading in this place is coming. 
And if we do not sink down deep root and sink those down by faith and prayer and heart and desire for that to be the case around here, that discipleship is truly happening, rich discipleship in this place, you know what happens? Is yeah, we see that the storms of life come to those we love and we think, you know what? We should have been more real. We should have been more honest. We should have had a deeper Christianity around here. And we are not selling a cheap grace or a cheap faith around here. We want people to see that shallow hearts when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ does not suffice. The third heart, listen closely, is an infested heart. Listen to verse 14 of Luke 8. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. We actually have some life group questions for the coming week. Is, is this a saving faith, a life that hears and a life that kind of goes along with it but don't mature? We're going to ask you some of those questions in life group this week. They're important questions. I think that by looking and chasing down the soft hearts, the fourth heart, we'll, we'll find some answers to this. But what we need to know in the Palestinian hill country where Jesus is, is sharing this is that there were lots of weeds in this climate and in this soil, weeds that could grow even up to six feet tall, so my height. As I was studying, I realized I know what my next Halloween costume is, right? It's a Palestinian weed. What are you? I'm a Palestinian weed. It's a very good pastor costume right there. I'm a Palestinian weed, and they can choke out life. Yeah, anyways, whatever. <clears throat> kind of got a Halloween dark vibe to it, doesn't it? Anyways, let's move on. See, this is what happens in the infested heart. When the seed is sown on the soil, watered, and begins to sprout up, the thorns around it also sprout up and grow with an infective violence, choking out the seed before it can produce fruit. It says that it never matures, this kind of heart. This kind of soil, when the seed is planted in it, never produces fruit. It's choked out by weeds before it ever does. Jesus explains that the thorns represent life's worries, riches, and pleasures. A life where spiritual issues are not the priority or even a priority. Worries, riches, and pleasures wrestle faith, and faith loses out for this person. This soil represents flirting with the Christian walk, but life gets either too demanding, right, life's worries, or too tempting, riches and pleasures, so they don't respond in a way that draws them to Jesus. I think it's really important for a lot of us in the room at this point to start to really reflect. See, looking at the first two soils, I know that I've accepted the word more than the first. I've persevered longer than the second, but this third soil makes me a bit uncomfortable because all sorts of things vie for my attention, all sorts of things vie for your attention. Stages of life that seem to push Jesus to the margins. Idols, lesser things taking the place of Jesus in our lives as our highest joy and pleasure and treasure. And here specifically, Jesus points out riches and pleasures, but right, for us, that's not an issue, right? Riches and pleasures, the temptations or the worries of life, the busyness of life, the pace of it all, it's no problem for any of us, right? We need to listen closely about this third soil because it doesn't bear fruit. Life's worries, riches, and pleasures have so enticed this heart that there's no discipleship, there's no real fruit, there's no evidence of good works, like I talked about at the beginning, being a byproduct of saving faith. See, when we're not abiding in Jesus, money seems greater. It does. And we're enticed by it. When we're not abiding in Jesus, pornography, romance novels, promiscuity, or adultery seem more satisfying. Really, when we're not abiding in Jesus, nearly everything seems more enticing and important. Jesus is saying, abide in my word, abide in me. Don't abide in these fleeting lesser pleasures, but life gets busy, other things draw our attention, and our faith takes a back seat, and maturity doesn't take place, and fruit does not grow. Why? Because we're not abiding in Jesus. We're actually abiding in worries. 
the busyness of life. We're actually abiding in riches, chasing a dream for more stuff and more notoriety and chasing pleasures, chasing things that are lesser than Jesus himself. Money's good. Pleasures are good. Jesus, in fact, made us to make the best use of our money and to have the fullest extent of pleasure. So I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm saying that when they take the place of Jesus, it's a cheap substitute and it doesn't satisfy fully. So listen, has your faith in Jesus been hijacked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures? There's hope for you in Jesus. There may be some weeding to do, and weeding's never fun. I despise weeding. I live where there's a strata. I love that. I'll pay the strata. They do my weeding. It's awesome. But like, there might be some weeding for us to do if this sounds like us. There's hope here too. We talked about everything being done to the glory of God. Look, if you're a young mom or a young dad and your life just seems consumed with little ones and you're like, what am I doing? I haven't spent time in the Bible and I feel guilty about it, right? I haven't done all these things. Just be so encouraged by the fact that you can do everything to the glory of God. So as you are, like, if you just don't pull your hair out on a particular day, give God glory for that and he's walking with you through the busyness, hecticness of life. It's not just that God would be glorified when we go across the world and do missions. It's God being glorified in the raising of your kids and just calling out to him during the day and saying, I need you, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, but I wanna do this with you, God, and I want you to get glory in it. But that's, that's this infested heart, not getting consumed with life's worries and actually saying, you know what, Jesus? All of these worries exist, but I'm gonna make you the Lord over them all of my life. Help me to just walk with you. Right, God gets glory in our interactions with waitresses and those in the grocery store. We see everything as opportunity to live unto him and not just be so burdened down with, I gotta get this errand done, I gotta get this task done. But we say, God, to your glory I do this task. There's hope for us if we're stuck in the weeds is we have some weeding to do, some abiding to do, and some glory in our our desire for money, our desire for pleasure, and how we're burdened down and to give God glory in the midst of those things and walk with him through it by abiding in him. Fourth heart is a soft heart. Look at verse 15 of Luke 8. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast or abide in it in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The difference between soil three people and soil four people is all about the condition of the heart. A healthy heart clings to God's word. It responds to him as the highest priority of their lives, whereas an infested heart has trouble seeing him over the distractions and attractions of other things. It takes constant listening and clinging to the word of God to be fruitful. To respond to God isn't going through life instinctively knowing what to do when. It is walking in step with Jesus day by day. Sometimes we think that if we hang around church enough, right, or do some morning devos enough, that we're just gonna go automatically through our day and, and make the right choices and, 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 and live Christian, godly lives and expect that all the decisions we make after doing our daily bread reading for like one page of a Devo in the morning and then we're done and we move on or getting our Sunday church in and then we'll go about the week just knowing how to instinctively like live to the glory of God and live a godly life. We're fooling ourselves. Soft hearts abide in the word of God. They Hold it fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience, meaning they bring it with them, not just on Sunday, but into Monday. And they know that there's fruit to bear there as they walk with Jesus there. Here's what Daryl Bach says about the soft heart or the solid heart. He says, the only use of God's heart that bears fruit, the only use of God's word that bears fruit is one that clings to it with patient steadfastness and a solid heart, a heart that says the most urgent task is to walk through life with all of its traumas clinging tightly to God's hand and his word. Just keep that up on the screen for a moment, if you will. If you have room on a piece of paper, I, I urge you to write that last line down. The most urgent task, 
that we have is to walk through life with all of its traumas clinging tightly to God's hand and his word. That is our most urgent task. And Jesus in John 8, which we'll get back to, says that that's what true disciples do. They walk with God. They're holding his hand and his word day in and day out. So look, a question to ask ourselves is, is my faith, is my life producing fruit? This is a hard question. There's a little bit of encouragement here in the fact that the parable is looking at the fruit of your life and asking what it's produced, but that it's, it, it's like a crop that slowly develops. Don't look at yesterday and be like, man, I blew it. I'm not producing fruit. But fruit produces and a crop grows in a season. Look at the last season of your life. Is there more fruit than maybe a few seasons before? I'm not going to put a time frame on that season, go agriculturally and call it, you know, the fall, or, you know, like three months. Like, what is a season to you? Look back and say, is there fruit? Am I growing? Am I bearing fruit? Is, is there Christian witness in my life? Am I living for Jesus? Is my walk closer? Because if we evaluate those things and say, I don't think so, we may have infested hearts. Not only infested hearts, we may have hard hearts. We may have shallow hearts. We may be one storm away from packing it in and walking away. And Jesus is saying, evaluate it. Do you have a fruit-producing life? And if you don't, abide in his word. Hard stuff happens in, to the heart and the good soil too. Just as it does the other hearts, but hearts soft to the gospel stand the test of time. So there's the challenge. And yet, there's such hope and such encouragement. The promise here is not just that those hearts on good soil will just survive, but that they will yield a crop of a hundredfold. To give you a bit of perspective of what was expected was maybe a seven to tenfold yield in the crop. That was standard, that was expected. If you got a tenfold yield in that crop, you are ecstatic about that. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, just abide in me. And I will produce in you a hundredfold yield. That's staggering. We are called to abide in his word, but what he offers to us is far greater. So flip back to the Gospel of John if you have a Bible, but go past our text in chapter 8 and go all the way to John 15. It is really a chapter about abiding in Jesus. Here's what he says. If you abide, verse 7, in me and my words abide in you, same stuff, abiding in his word. If you do that, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Meaning, hey, I'm abiding in your word. God, give me a Lamborghini. No, it's talking about as you abide in his word, you will come to love Jesus and you'll love the things that Jesus loves. And as you see lost hearts and you pray for them and you witness to them and you say, Lord, save them, he will save. As you go about asking for God to redeem situations and reconcile things and you get your hands dirty in there and ask him to help, he's about those things and he will give you those things that you ask for. Verse eight, by this my father is glorified. By what? that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We have to stop and evaluate from time to time and say, what, what am I doing with my life? Am I just hanging out? Am I just going to work and trying to climb the ladder? Am I just whatever? Does my life produce fruit? The, the life that glorifies God and identifies true disciples is the one that bears much fruit, it says in verse eight. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here's what I love about this. Here's why I read you this text this morning. Because I want us to see our part. It's demanding. Our part is that we are commanded to abide in Jesus, full stop meaning to believe and obey Jesus. But do you hear what he says about his part? His part is costly love, abide in my love. You know what his love is? It's the kind of costly love that dies for you so that you can live, that pays the penalty for you so that you can go free. It's the kind of love that put his life on the line so yours wouldn't have to be. That's his part. We go about abiding in Jesus. He goes about loving us with costly love. 
giving us joy to the fullest extent, his joy in us to the full. It's better joy than you can imagine. And his part is also producing an exponential amount of fruit in our lives as we simply go about believing and abiding and obeying, right? We're the branches. He is the vine. We're just hanging out as branches. He's the source by which we produce all fruit. It's not on you. What's on you is to look at the beauty of the gospel and say, I'm going to live there. I'm going to abide in that narrative, not what the world's offering me. So who are true disciples of Jesus? They're those who abide in his word and who over time continue to believe and obey Jesus. That was the long one. We're going to do two really quick short ones. First, what are true disciples of Jesus freed from? To understand what Jesus means about setting us free, we need to understand what from. In other words, the nature of the freedom offered depends on the nature of the slavery. And so Jesus is coming along and telling them their biggest problem isn't the Roman occupation that was existing in that time. Their biggest problem wasn't even their slavery in Egypt that they had had. Jesus is saying their biggest problem is their slavery to sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the crowd is saying, we're not slaves. Don't you know our history? We're not in bondage in Egypt anymore. And Jesus tells them that their slavery to sin is actually much worse. Now, you and I, when we hear the word sin, have the temptation to check out. All right, yeah, 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 I know sin. I shouldn't do wrong things. I should do right things. But it's much deeper than that. N.T. Wright helps us when he says, many people in the Western world are bored of hearing about sin. They think it just means offenses against someone else's old-fashioned morality, often in matters to do with sex. But that's far too small-minded of you. Sexual sin matters, of course. They matter very much. They can destroy a person, a marriage, a family, a community. But there is more to sin than sex, and sin as a whole is far greater than the sum of its parts. When people rebel against God in whatever way, new fields of force are called into being. A cumulative effect builds up, and individuals and societies alike become enslaved just as surely as if every single one of them wore chains and was hounded to work every day by a strong man with a whip. The tyrannical master isn't Pharaoh or Caesar, Jesus is saying, but our own self-centeredness and our enslaving devotion to created things rather than the creator of all things. And the sin of individuals has a cumulative effect of widespread systemic societal enslavement to sin. And Jesus comes along and says, abide in my word, you're my true disciples. And as you abide in my word, you will know the truth. You will see the beauty and wonder of the gospel, and that will set you free. So what true disciples of Jesus are freed from is the enslaving power of sin and eternal ramifications of it. That's the short answer. What are we saved from? You can't just say the truth will set me free. We were joking about this as a staff earlier and saying, you know, you kill somebody, go to prison, and then you claim this verse. Jesus will set me free. Like, we don't do the out of context thing. Jesus is saying, abide in the gospel. Abide there, live there, see the beauty of it, know the truth, and by rooting ourselves in his word, we go free. And as we go free, this is how Jesus frees us. He frees us from the eternal ramifications of our sin by becoming a curse for us on the cross, as Galatians 3.13 said. He was cursed by God so that we wouldn't have to be. He bore the wrath of God upon himself for us and our sin so that we wouldn't have to. But Jesus also not only eternally saves us from sin, but frees us presently from the enslaving power of sin by making us born again and shining light into our lives so that we can come to realize that Jesus is to be desired and treasured more than anything else in the world. When we abide in his word, see the truth and beauty of the gospel, and Jesus becomes our chief affection, we are freed from the enslaving power of sin and the eternal ramifications of our sin, and that is Christian freedom. So let me just give you an example about that. When I started dating Emily, I started seeing my buddies less, right? Can anybody relate to this and maybe their dating story? As I started dating Emily and my buddies just like, I, I didn't return the texts. I don't even think we were texting then yet, but it wasn't like we just weren't hanging out as much because I found her to be more beautiful than my buddies. Can I get an amen, right? A lot less facial hair. It's a gift, right? And so like just beautiful, far more beautiful than my buddies, right? I found my affections growing for her. 
I found my time being allotted differently and a lot more was going to her. We were engaged after two months, so you can just see the time, right? A lot of time. My thinking, my time, my life was changed because I was directed at her beauty and it shifted my time from them to her. By abiding in Jesus, the gospel becomes more beautiful. Jesus is telling this to us for our good. The commandment is good. Abide in Jesus and you'll see that he's more beautiful. And as we see that he's more beautiful, our sins become more detestable to us. So do you find yourself enslaved to a particular sin? Abide in Jesus. Because as you see his beauty, you're not just trying to not do bad stuff. You're seeing how wonderful he is and you see how detestable the sin is. That's how he frees us. He loosens the grip of the chains. We see the wonder of him, the beauty of him, the majesty of him, and we go, gross. Why did I wallow down there? True disciples of Jesus will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Finally, that's what true disciples are freed from. Here's what they're freed for. As we read that parable in Luke 8, it says that the seed that fell on good soil yielded a harvest of a hundredfold. There's a point to that. Because as the farmer sows the seed, there's a purpose in why he's doing it. He wants the harvest to come. And in our text this morning, in verse 39 of John 8, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Verse 40, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Well, what did Abraham do? What was he freed for? What was he set apart for? Hebrews 11, 8 says, by faith, Abraham obeyed, that was his part, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, but he simply followed after God and obeyed because that was his part. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. See, Abraham believed and obeyed God and was used for a purpose. Jesus desires true disciples for true relationship. And he desires to reach the world for his purposes through his disciples. In other words, Jesus set us free for a purpose, and that purpose is to serve God. Real freedom is not just kicking back. Real freedom is being freed from the slavery of sin unto Christian service of God and world. One last illustration as I close. When my wife and I lived in Vancouver a bunch of years ago, I made friends with a guy who worked for the Canucks. It's a great friend to have. And it was 2010, so it, like, working for the Canucks was cool because, because the team made the playoffs and things like that. So just a great time. And... Um, and made friends with him. And it was really neat to watch him in his role. He had one of those roles where he had access to the dressing room, to spend time with the players, traveled with the team, um, did all kinds of fun things. But he worked hard. The players in the NHL make millions, but they work hard every day's work. Game days every other day and practices in between. Right? And, and, and their day off is really after an Eastern Conference trip and they're just recovering from a time change and stuff. Like that's just their day off. Like this, you're just all in. And so he was all in because he did everything they did and then some, right? He would, just, he would work late and write and do all kinds of things. But as I watched him work hard, it wasn't work to him because he loved what he did. It's, he knew, he felt like he served a purpose. There were crowds that would come because what, the Canucks matter right? And so the stadium would fill, and there he is, and he had this purpose, and he was helping them. He had meaning, and he had significance. And that's really what we look for in a dream job, right? Working hard, but it doesn't feel like work. So it is with the Christian. That's what we're freed for, by the way. The more we abide in Jesus, the more we come to understand the riches of the gospel and the more we treasure Jesus above everything else. And far from making us idle, abiding in and treasuring Jesus leads us to use our freedom to make much of Christ. So much so that 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. 
Paul said, when I got saved, you know what grace did to me? It made me work harder than anybody. I know it, hands down, I'm working harder than anybody around me. Why? Because I've seen grace perhaps more clearly than anybody around me. And as I see that, I go out and work hard, but it's not work, it's joy. It's not work, it's grace. I get to revel in him. The wonder of grace didn't lead Paul to passivity or idleness, but prompted him to work hard to advance the gospel that had so changed his life. And that is true Christian freedom. Abiding in Jesus, growing in our knowledge of the truth, which spurs us on all the more to live for his glory and the world in need of saving. And so I really believe And we need to evaluate our hearts here this morning. And as we evaluate our hearts here this morning, we can understand the next steps. But either way, every one of us is to abide in Jesus and the rest will all make sense. So let me break it down this way because I believe God wants us to be fruit-bearing people and I believe God wants to use us on mission far more than we are. May the gospel fill you as you abide in Jesus. May the gospel free you from the enslaving power of sin as you abide in Jesus. And may the gospel fuel you to bear much fruit as you abide in Jesus. Let's pray and respond. I want us to have a time to be able to have an extended time of prayer. So we have a prayer team that'll kind of position themselves in different places in the room. And our goal in that is that you respond, not simply with singing, but you have someone that would be willing to pray with you, response in multiple ways. So we wanna give you that space to do that and be prayed for this morning. We believe in its power. Let's pray together and then let's respond in worship in multiple ways. God, thank you so much for the grace that you give. Thank you so much that the one command you seem to really have for us in this text and what true disciples do is that they, they dwell in what you say, and who you are. That's our part. Lord, I pray that you would fill us, free us, and fuel us for our part. And Lord, I pray yours over us as a people this morning as well. Your part of revealing your costly love to us. Your part of giving us joy inexplicable. Your part of bearing hundredfold type of fruit in our lives where we just have to scratch our heads and say, wow, God is so good. This is the work of God. Lord, would you work in us in that way? And would you help us abide in you? In the precious name of Jesus, amen.